Okay, let's just, uh, let's bow our hearts and just uh, spend a, a short time in prayer before the Lord, shall we? Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege of prayer, that we can come before your throne and bring our prayers and requests. Father, we do this morning just lift you, Kat, again. Um, pray, Lord, you put your hand upon her, that she would recover, um, Father, from this uh, this virus or whatever it is, Lord, that's, that's caused this problem. Uh, and Father, bring her back to full strength, we pray. Um, Father, just bless and help and strengthen Tim as he cares for Kat and for the children as well. Lord, we just lift them to you. Um, Father, we thank you for them as a family and just ask that you would continue to watch over and guard and keep them. Father, we pray too for for Matt and Nat, Lord, this wonderful news uh, they've shared this morning. And Lord, we just ask again that your blessing will be upon them over the days, the weeks ahead, as they prepare for their family to grow. Uh, Lord, it's just a wonderful thing. Lord, children are a blessing from the Lord, is what your word tells us. And so, Father, we just ask that you keep Nat in good health and just watch over this baby as he or she grows. And Lord, we do just again, just rejoice and thank you. Father, also pray for Vicky and Matt's mum. Lord, that you would just continue to help her as she recovers um, after um, these uh, operations and and uh, issues with her back father just help her we pray to come back to full strength and just uh, again watch over them as a family father for all those in our fellowship that are, are suffering in any way shape or form whether it's things we know about or whether it's things that are a little private and people haven't shared Lord, we just pray for each other this morning that you would keep us lord not just in good health but father keep us most importantly in good spiritual health but Father, Paul prayed that your body, that your, your bodies would prosper as your, your spirit and souls prosper. And Father, we pray that for ourselves. Lord, we want to be in good health that we can serve you, that we can live our lives for your glory. Father, we do pray for this fellowship. We pray, Lord, over the, the next month or two, Lord, as uh, many will be taking a break um, from work and from other things. Lord, that you just keep us, Lord, centered and focused on you, Lord, as the writer of the Hebrews Lord states, Lord, we want to keep our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, we never take a, a break from you, and Lord, nor should we ever want to do so. Lord, just keep us, Lord, so desiring of our time, of our fellowship with you. Father, I pray you help each of us, Lord, just to place you first each day of our lives, to seek you. Lord, to learn to walk in the blessings that your word speaks of. Lord, those blessings that are there for us to take advantage of, Lord, if we just come before you, if we just learn to walk in the way. Father, we do pray also this morning for our country. Lord, your word says we should pray for those that are in positions of power and authority. And Lord, we lift you, Theresa May. We lift you, our government, this morning. Father, on the surface, do things seem, seem to be still in a real state of turmoil? And Father, we just ask you bring stability. But, Father, also bring a a government about, Lord, that would pass laws that are not contrary to your word. And that, Father, you would hold back those things that are contrary to your word. Father, we see so much going on, Lord, that your word speaks of as evil, as abhorrent. And, Father, we are living in those days that Isaiah spoke of when people will call that which is good evil and that which is evil good. So, Father, we do pray particularly for those Christian politicians that have the opportunity to influence. Father, we pray you lead and strengthen and guide them, give them the courage and the boldness to stand up for that which is true. Father, again, we do pray this morning for your church around the world. Lord, again, particularly those that are being persecuted, that they would know your peace, they would know your strength with them. And Father, we pray also for your people Israel. Lord, as we see what's going on in the Middle East, and particularly, Lord, right now with what's happening on the Temple Mount. Lord, we are living in days where prophecies are being fulfilled before our eyes. So, Lord, we do pray, as your word says, for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for your people Israel. And, Lord, we long for that time when their eyes will be opened and they will see you as their Messiah. Lord, we recognize your word says they will go through much hardship in the days ahead. Nevertheless, Lord, we do pray for them. We lift them to you now. And Father, once again, just for us now, as we still our hearts and prepare to come humbly before your word, Father, we want you to speak to us. 
Lord, we don't want to leave here this morning just the same as we came in. Father, stir us, we pray. Lord, just this day I've been reminded of those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and how as they listened to you, their hearts burned within them. Lord, this morning we pray that your spirit would speak to each one of us. And Lord, not just for those in, in this hall now, but Father, for the children as well, that we would grow together in knowledge and grace. We just thank you for all of these things and commit these things to you now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 22, which is where we've got to in our study through this incredible book. Again, I would encourage if, uh, if you've not got a copy already um, and you want anything that's going to give you real confidence in regard to the authenticity of God's word, the accuracy, the integrity, um, Bill Cooper's books, and particularly his study on the book of Genesis, um, it is quite thick. I think it's probably the heaviest book I've ever known. Uh, the paper they've printed on is very heavy, but it's, it's brilliant. Um, Bill brings out so many wonderful things um, that show that the details we have recorded could no way have been a later fabrication. This has to have been written at the time or recorded at the time and passed down. Of course, we know that Moses compiled and then put all these things together for us. But all these events, Moses himself wouldn't have known about some of the details that are recorded. So clearly we have an authentic account of what took place uh, and these things. So that's a great starting point, to know that what we're believing is true. Of course, God's word says of itself, thy word is true from the beginning. We're told that every word of God is pure as well. God doesn't intend to deceive, doesn't want to deceive. So we have something that we can trust, that we can build on. Now, when we come to this chapter, chapter 22... One of the most amazing, incredible chapters in the Bible. I, I was looking last night on some uh, websites, um, some Jewish um, websites, looking at what they had to say about this chapter. And, and it's interesting because they allude to the, the Christian parallels that may be apparent here. Of course, as we look at this, we see an incredible model that God lays down for us in the book of Genesis, some 2,000 years before Jesus came, these events took place, foretelling exactly in detail what was later going to occur with, of course, another father offering up his own son. And that's all we're going to be looking at this morning. The, the phrase we have there, the akidah, is actually means the binding in Hebrew. Um, and it's the idea of the binding of Isaac to the altar. Uh, and that's the, the phrase that the Jews give it. So if you hear that phrase, the akidah, it's simply the binding. And it's the binding of Isaac um, to the altar is what it means. Now, we've been looking and the, we're going to look in a, in a minute. The opening verse tells us that after these things, we see this a number of times, it came to pass after these things. Well, the things that we were referring back to, Abraham had been, if you remember, in, in Hebron. You can see there, almost in the center of the map, just to the west of the Dead Sea. Uh, that's where he'd made camp and he stayed for a while. That's where the visitors uh, had come. These three visitors, God himself amongst these two angels, and, and God himself come speak to Abraham. And God not only says that Abraham will have a child in, a, in a, a year from this time, is what he's told, but he's also told that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are about to be destroyed because of their iniquity, and the two angels, of course, go off. And if you can see the, the southern area of the, the Dead Sea, the, the, the little bit of the bottom there, that's the area of where Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah were. So from Hebron, Abraham easily could have seen the destruction you know, you can see, if you get you know, a fire, you can see kind of the, the, the plumes, the, the clouds of smoke uh, ascending, and you can see from a great distance. Well, clearly the type of destruction that the Bible records that Solomon and Gomorrah experienced would have been seen from Hebron. Now, whether it's because of, of the whole situation, Abraham just wanted to get away from that, we don't know. We're not told specifically why, but Abraham chooses to make this trip into the land of what we typically know of the land of the Philistines and comes to this place of Gerar. And that's where he meets or speaks to uh, Ahimelech, who's the king of the Philistines. Starts off by saying about Sarah being his sister, and we talked a little bit about that last time and maybe some of the reasons. But as a, a result of the, all these things, we find that Ahimelech's household, all the ladies, cannot bear children for this period of time. 
Oh, they're, they're barren. Now, Abraham, after this, is told to pray for them. He prays for them, and then suddenly they are able to conceive. And as we commented, I think the whole of that is an object lesson because suddenly Abraham and Sarah realize that God is a God that can do miracles. And God is a God that can open closed wombs. Now, Sarah being 90, Abraham being 100 or so at this point, it's not kind of a, the, the natural process for them. And so I think they're reminded that God can do these things. And we find that it is then about nine months after this that Isaac is born, the child of promise, the one that God said he would bless them with. And they eventually leave Gerar and they come down to Beersheba and that's where they've been dwelling, that's where they are at this point. Now, what we're going to see is a journey, or Abraham and Isaac's journey, up to the area of Jerusalem where this mountain Moriah or this mountain range Moriah is located. It's some 50 miles or so uh, that they would have traveled from where they were. So when we look at the text, we read, it came to pass after these things. Okay, so that's the things we've just been looking at so far. And, And by the way, they've been in Beersheba for some time because Isaac is now somewhere around 33 years of age. Is this anything up to about 28 years after he was weaned? He was weaned about the age of five. That's the point that Ishmael has started persecuting him. That's the point that that 400 years of servitude begins for the descendants of Abraham that God spoke to him about. It begins with the taunting of Ishmael. It carries on through that time for Isaac and then for Jacob in the land of Canaan and then ultimately as the tribes go down into Egypt eventually Egypt also carry on that persecution and then after the close of that period of time 400 years of persecution there was 30 years before that where Abraham was in the land leading up to that point so we have a total of 430 years at the end of which God then leads the children of Israel out of Egypt so those are the things that have been taking place so Again, Isaac, not a kid, not a child anymore. Uh, the word that's, that's used in Scripture, we'll see, sometimes we, we find that in reference to a lad here, but it's not talking about a young child. Uh, it's talking about a young man. So we're told, it came to pass after these things that God did, and we're told, tempt Abraham. Now, we need to make this very clear, because God does not tempt. James 1, verse 13 and 14 say, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with either evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So we have to understand the context of what this is saying. This isn't saying that God tried to tempt Abraham in the sense of trying to trip him up and causing him to sin. Uh, the word in the Hebrew, uh, Nasor, uh, is literally to prove. Like you would prove a horse or whatever. You see whether they are worthy, whether they're able to do that which you want them to do. And that's exactly the kind of testing that Abraham is now about to endure. So God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And I love this because he says, and he said, behold, here I am. And I love this because this response from Abraham is very much a, yes, Lord, I'm here, I'm ready. You know, it's that kind of moment like when we were about to go out and Joyce says, Barry, are you ready? Yeah, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm at the door. I've got my shoes on. And then we realize we've got three children. We've got to get their shoes on before we can even start to move. But, you know, but it's that I'm ready to go. And it's that kind of response that Abraham gives. It's not just, yes, Lord. It's behold, here I am. There's kind of an anticipation with Abraham. You know, God has done for Abraham what Abraham probably at some point previously just thought impossible by blessing him with his child. But now there's been some years that have passed. And we're not told of any conversations that Abraham has had with God during this period of time. But now now God speaks to Abraham again. And Abraham is, yes, Lord, I'm here, I'm ready. But I don't think he was ready for what was about to come. Because we then read in verse 2, and he said, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I tell thee of. Now, this is an incredible statement, because, of course, there was Ishmael, there was another son, but God doesn't recognize the work of the flesh. It's only that which is 
through God's grace that is counted. What a great lesson for us. You know, it doesn't matter how hard we strive, how hard we work, God doesn't count the work of the flesh. You know, all those, those cults that go out there knocking on doors and doing whatever they do, trying to please God in some way, doesn't work. See, God has done it all. What we have to do is simply receive it. I think that situation with Abraham going to, to Abimelech and the whole situation with the, the women not being able to conceive, again, an object lesson to remind Abraham that God is able to do things that we cannot do. Again, the work of the flesh is not counted. God just here looks at Isaac as being his only son, the son of the promise. And it's interesting because we're told, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, and we're told, whom thou lovest. Now this is beautiful because this is the first time that the word love is found in scripture and it's used to describe the father's love. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, the world thinks they understand love. They think they, they understand what love is all about. But really, if you want to understand love, you need to go back to the source. The, the real root of love is within God himself. And it's that love that we see expressed between the Father and the Son. It was interesting, at the wedding we went to a few weeks ago, um, in the evening at the, the reception, they, were, they had a, a disco, and Marla and Amita and Connie were, were dancing uh, way beyond bedtime. Uh, and they, they played um, one of the songs by um, Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance With Somebody, you probably know the song. And so the girls have kind of been singing that a bit. And I was just talking to uh, Marla particularly yesterday and to Mitra a little as well. And, and just saying about the songs that the world writes. Compared to the songs that, that we listen to most of the time. And we, we hardly ever listen to anything that is not Christian, not worship. Um, don't really want to. I mean, there's some lots of good songs that have been written over the years, of course. But, you know, we just surround ourselves with godly things. That's what we want to do. And I was just saying, uh, you know, when you listen to the words of the songs that the world writes, most of them are very sad. They're very, very depressing. You know, and you've only got to look at the number of artists who end up with problems with drink or with drugs or with some sort of addiction. You know, of course, Whitney Houston died herself a few years ago. I'm not sure, they think, I think the conclusion was it was probably some sort of drug overdose and and there was another singer of a band this week that committed suicide. And, you know, these people that seemingly have it all, but actually have nothing. You know, and you, you listen then to people that are singing songs, worshipping God. And there's just a joy, there's an excitement, there's, a, there's just something wonderful there. Well, the world doesn't get love. It, it, it thinks it does, but it doesn't. God is love. And if we want to understand what love is, we need to understand the nature of sacrifice that's contained in love itself. Love is about giving. God says, take thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah. Now, this place, Moriah, um, is quite interesting. We find that the name itself, according to Carl and Dillich in their commentary, actually means the shown of Jehovah. That's the, the meaning of the name itself. It's the place where Jehovah would show. And it's where he shows his love. It's where he shows his grace. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we're actually, we find there that Moriah is the place where the temple was built. So we actually discover that Moriah, this place that Abraham is being told to take Isaac to, was the very place that some 2,000 years later... The Father, God the Father, would tell Jesus effectively to go. In obedience, Jesus went to this place, to Moriah, we know it as Calvary or Golgotha. But it's the same place, which is just incredible. We'll talk more about that in a, in a while. Now, all of this begs this question, does God condone child sacrifice? Isn't that what seems to be here? Well, the question then is, is there anything more abhorrent than child sacrifice? And the answer, yes, there is, and it's sin. You see, we all forget just how horrible and abhorrent to God sin really is. We're so used to sin because it's all around us. It permeates the lives which we live. But see, to God who is sinless, 
Sin is vile. And God knew that it would take the death of his son to pay for the price of sin. Did God want to give his son? Is it something that God was looking forward to? No, not at all. But it was the only price that could be paid. And of course we find that Jesus himself was willing to take the sin of the world upon him. Knowing that many people in the world would still choose to reject him even after he'd gone to the cross for them. I mean, that's love. In uh, Joe Foshi's uh, commentary on this uh, chapter, he just says that only God has the right to offer up his son. I thought it was just quite an interesting statement. And he went on to say that actually all the child sacrifice that we see throughout the, the ages, the pagan practices that require the shedding of blood, are just a perversion of God's plan that was again laid from before the foundation of the world, the lamb that was slain. We were singing about that this morning. And all those other pagans that, that have sacrificed their children, and we read much in scripture about those that offer their children up to Molech and, and so on. All of that was just a distortion. It was just a satanic attempt to cover over what God was truly doing. God is the only one that has the right to do this. And of course, just as we see in this example and this model, God's son was willing and we'll see that Isaac was also willing. Another thing to highlight, though, of course, is that God calls each of us to give up the things that are most precious to us. In the New Testament, in Matthew 10, verse 37, we read, He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that takes not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. He that finds his life shall lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. That's the kind of cost of sacrifice that God is looking for. Are we willing to give up everything? Do we see God as being so important, so wonderful, that he is worth everything else that we have? We've been singing that song, Worth It All, but really just drawn from what Paul says in the New Testament that I've considered everything else rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. You know, I'll let go of all I have just to have all of him. Now, have we come to that place in our lives yet where there really isn't anything else that we want? Where we've become effectively spoiled for the things of this world? That there's nothing in this world that appeals to us anymore, that has any real draw or pull for us, because compared to Jesus, it's empty. Have we come to that place? Verse 3, we read, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. It's just one sentence there for us, really. But Abraham, getting up early in the morning, knowing what's been asked of him, Going outside and chopping the wood, and probably every time he's, he's chopping the wood, he's thinking of what's about to happen. And then making this journey. Again, notice what God is asking of him, because this is for a burnt offering. We often tend to think about this whole scene and so on, and we think about Abraham being asked to kill Isaac. But actually he was being asked to burn him. To literally to consume everything. That's what a burnt offering was. There would be nothing left. We'll come back to that because there's a, an important point to make later. First of all, then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. <laughs> it's interesting. I wonder if he'd been walking along with his eyes down, just feeling a little bit sad or just, just contemplating all these things. But he lifted up his eyes, we're told, and saw the place afar off. Now, God has said he would show him where to go when he gets there. Now he's getting close. And notice it's the third day. There's no coincidences in scripture. You see, for this point, up to this point, for three days, the son had been dead to his father. As far as Abraham was concerned, God had already given this command. And so Isaac was as dead to his father, just as Jesus was for three days, for three nights dead, before being raised to new life, just as Isaac in type will be. Verse 5, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide you here with the ass, and I 
and the lad, again that word, that young man, would go yonder. And in the Hebrew, the implication here is, and we will worship, and we will come again to you. What a statement of faith. I don't think Abraham for a minute is thinking that he's going to try and wriggle out of this. He's going to argue with God and present a great case where God will say, well, okay, well, I'll change my mind. Abraham is expecting to go through with this sacrifice. And yet he says to the men, and I don't think it's just a cover story to make them think everything's okay. I think this is a demonstration of the faith that Abraham had, and we'll see confirmation of that in a moment. That Abraham says, we will go and worship, and we will come again. You see, there's a demonstration here of Abraham's faith that God could literally raise Isaac out of the ashes. Because God had already said that in Isaac your seed shall be called. That it's through Isaac that you will have these descendants that will go on to bless the world. But still an incredible test of faith before the event. I'm always amazed and blessed and encouraged by the faith of the people that before 1948 wrote and spoke about the re-establishment of the nation of Israel. Many of the church had given up on the idea. Many of them had gone with that kind of replacement theology idea, that God has now finished with Israel and so on. And yet there were a number of scholars who didn't let go of the promises of God. Even though they couldn't see a way of it happening, they commented that the only way God's promises could be fulfilled is if Israel are back in their land. And of course, 1948, the nation was born in a day. See, God is faithful. And sometimes those promises seem to tarry a bit. But God is faithful. God never breaks the promise he makes. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac. Interesting, isn't it? In type here. Just as the cross was laid upon the back of Jesus. So this wood is laid upon Isaac. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And they went both of them together now notice that they went together in in other words they went in agreement the two servants are left behind see what's going to happen on this mount it has to be settled between the father and the son only and of course this is playing it out but the reality was that god the father and god the son would enter into a transaction on mount moriah some 2000 years after this where the son would take upon himself the wrath of the Father for us. John six thirty eight, and Jesus said, Therefore I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And in John ten seventeen we read there, Therefore does my Father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. You see, the Son was willing to go. I don't know what Isaac thought. We're not really given any insight into his thinking at this point. But this is an incredible situation. We'll go on and we'll see. Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And another one of the most amazing declarations in Scripture. Remember that God has already announced to Abimelech that Abraham is a prophet. Here Abraham prophesies because he says, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. And I think that I love the way the, the, the King James translates this because I think this is exactly what is being stated here. The question, of course, where is the lamb? And the answer is God is going to provide himself as that lamb by the way it's the first time the word lamb is used in the Old Testament why is that significant? well it's significant because guess where this question is answered and where the first time the word lamb appears in the New Testament you won't find it in Matthew or in Mark or in Luke but when we go to John's Gospel John the Baptist the next day John seeing Jesus coming unto him and saith, behold the lamb. That's the answer to the question. Where is the lamb? See, what would be provided on Moriah is a ram. Wasn't the, the answer to the question. They offer this ram as a substitute, of course. But the question was, where is the lamb? God will provide himself the lamb. 
And then John announces the first time the word lamb is used in the New Testament. Behold the lamb of God. This is the lamb, effectively John declares, which takes away the sin of the world. What a wonderful statement. Verse 9, and they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there. Abraham's built a number of altars before, hasn't he? And we've seen each time those altars represented a, a step away from the things of the world, a letting go of the world, and a wanting and an embracing more of God. And he comes to this place, this altar, this final altar that we see here. And this really is the, the end of Abraham's own life, his own dreams, his own hopes in a sense. Willing to lay it all down for God. It's kind of a little bit like the Job scenario, you know. The question in Job, can a man love God purely because God is God? And Job answers the question, yes. Somebody can love God just because God is God. Forget the blessings. They're great if they come, but they're not essential because we can love God because of who he is. And Abraham has come to this place now of just being obedient to God because of who God is. Abraham built an altar there and laid the word in order. And they were told and bound Isaac, his son. Isaac doesn't seem to struggle, doesn't seem to fight. And laid him on the altar upon the word. Just imagine the intensity of this moment. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And you can probably imagine the tears rolling down Abraham's face at this moment. I think any of us can try and imagine, but if you're a parent, if you've got children, the thought of this is beyond heartbreaking. But that's the point. That's the message that's being communicated here. Because that's what God the Father did for each one of us. And so the question here is, what have we done? Chuck Misler used to often ask the question when he was teaching he said, put your hand up this morning if you're a Christian. I'm going to ask you to do that. But he said, put your hand up if you're a Christian. And a lot of the people there would put their hands up. He says, great, what have you done with it? Well, look what God did for us. What have we done with it? Are we still ashamed sometimes when we're in conversation with people to mention God's name because of what people might think of us? Are we more concerned about our name than God's name? Are we, as Paul says, not ashamed of the gospel? Not ashamed of what God has done for us because it's the power of God unto salvation. Again, before the burnt offering could be consumed on the altar, the blood had to be shed. Just as Jesus on the cross, his blood was shed to atone for sin and then the wrath of God was poured upon him. Verse 11, And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. This is that moment of pardon, if you sense, for, for Abraham, for Isaac. Suddenly there's a, there's a glimmer of hope for him that he won't have to go through with this. It, you know, this is, this is us because Jesus endured the cross so that as we stand before the judgment seat of God, it won't be an angel that will intervene it will be Jesus himself on our behalf that will say they're mine they've been washed in my blood they're clean verse 12 says and he said to the angel speaking to Abraham lay not thy hand upon the lad neither do thou anything unto him for now I know that thou fearest God seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son thine only son from me. Now, who was this test really for? You see, did God lack information about Abraham? Was God curious to see how much Abraham loved him and didn't know the answer to that question? Well, no, because God knows all things. God is outside of time. This is all an object lesson to teach us and also for Abraham to grow in knowledge and grace. You see, God knew what the result would be but Abraham didn't. Until Abraham was put in his place and faced with this test. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket. 
by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. So they still offer this offering to the Lord. But this isn't the lamb. This was a ram. This was just a substitution at this point. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. See, Abraham names the place, this is where it's going to happen. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Abraham's saying, I don't know what's going to happen, what God is going to do, but something is going to happen on this very spot, on this place, this Moriah. Now, in the book of Hebrews, we're told all about this because the writer of the Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 17, almost says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Again, his promise is speaking of the fact that his descendants would come through Isaac, but he still went through with this. Of whom it was said, that in Isaac thy seed shall be called. And notice what verse 19 says, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. From whence also he received him in a figure, in a type. So Isaac's raised up to new life effectively, just as Jesus was raised to new life. Now, I'm just going to show you just from an interesting point of view, that's what Jerusalem would have looked like during the time of Solomon. But you can see there that it sits kind of on a, a slightly ascending uh, piece from, from the south at the bottom going to the north of the highest point being at the north there. And it kind of has this like, kind of almost like a footprint type of uh, pattern to it. Now, that's a, a, a look, a topographical, uh, topological, sorry, map of the Temple Mount and the area uh, of Moriah. Now, you've got that area that we just saw there but the whole area is like a ridge section going up to the the peak at the very top now we've got from places we know and understand today uh, mount zion and the teropian valley on one side and then the mount of olives and the kidron valley and then down the bottom you've got the hinnom valley so those valleys surround these kind of mountains and get this ridge system in the middle going up to the top now salem is the old town of Salem that became Jerusalem. Um, that's the, the place that originally was, uh, the Jebusites were camped there. That was their, their dwelling. Then we've got the threshing floor of Aruna or Ornan. Uh, both names are used to the same individual. In First Chronicles 21, this becomes the place that David then chooses as the, the location for the temple to be built. If you remember, David was moved to number the children of Israel, and of course he was advised against it, but he's then offered a variety of options as to what kind of judgment God would bring, and he chooses this plague, where the plague is spreading through Jerusalem, and it stops, as he pleads with God, it stops at this place here, and that's when David offers to buy the threshing, or chooses to buy the threshing floor from Aruna, um, and uh, says, you know, I'm not offered to God that which cost me nothing, and so on, and buys this place at the top and it becomes uh, the location where the temple will be built. But that's not the highest point. The highest point, the peak, this Akedah, this place where this binding of Isaac took place, was right up the top. Now that's just the, what we know. Again, no questions about any of that. Uh, just zooming in a little bit, you can see it there. Now at the top again, we've already said this place is the same as Golgotha. Now that's underlaying that. You can see just a, a kind of from uh, Google Earth, just a picture of the actual scene. You can already see the Temple Mount exactly as it says. And up the top there, you've got what we know as Calvary today. Um, so that's the whole area. And you'll notice that that area at the top, the highest peak is 777 meters above sea level, interestingly enough. Not sure what you do with that, but it is. Um, and you also find that it's outside the city. It's outside the walls of the city where Jesus is offered, or another way we could say it in Levitical, ter- Levitical terms would be outside the camp. Okay, at the top there. Now if we lay over the top of that a map, and that's a typical map you'll find in the back of your Bibles. Again, you've got the simple mount, uh, you've got that black line you can see somewhere at the top. That's the, the walls of the city as it was, and again, 
that place where you'll find a, a question mark very often if you've got a map like this in the back of your Bible. It will say Calvary question mark and Christ tomb question mark. Because through the centuries, other people have suggested other locations. What I want to say to you, not that it's a really big deal, but that that really is the right location. And you can see it when you put all of these things together. There is no other location that fits all of the data. Now, what's, what's fascinating... Uh, this area at the top, I'll show you some pictures in a minute, is, is known as Gordon's Tomb, um, because General Charles Gordon discovered the, discovered, rediscovered, uh, back in 1883. Um, if you want the history of this man, he's, uh, obviously a British general. He fought in the Crimean War and so on and did uh, many other exploits and uh, so on. But he was excavating in uh, Jerusalem and found this place and recognized it as being a very likely candidate for not just Golgotha itself, but the place where the tomb was. Because if you remember when Jesus was crucified, they carried him to a tomb which was right next to Golgotha itself, the place where he was crucified. Now, actually, Andrew Boni, in a commentary on Leviticus, which was done some 37 years before General Gordon discovered the tomb, had listed all the kind of requirements that he would have to meet for the actual location. Of course, this place meets all of those. Now, that's a picture you can just about see in the middle what looks almost like the like a skull. And this is why a number of people think that this is the place of the skull, because this outcrop of rock looks like a, a skull. Well, okay, I understand that, but I don't think that's the case. We've talked about this before. I think the reason that this location became known as the place of a skull, which is exactly what John tells us, not just any old skull, but the place of a skull, was because this was the place where when David had chopped off the head of Goliath, we're told he took the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. And I believe that this is the place that he buries the head of Goliath in this area. And it's borne out by the name itself because the name of the place is Golgotha, Goliath of Gath. The place itself was named after the skull of this giant who was a representation of the great might and power of the enemy and yet how was he defeated? By a stone. You see these models and these types all through scripture. Christ as the stone and then effectively as Christ is above this point as the cross is erected on top of this hill Jesus' feet literally standing on top of the head of the enemy in a very literal and real sense. You can see that outcrop of the rock there again today. This is the, this kind of rock face. Right at the top there is where this Akedah, this offering of Isaac, would have taken place. Ultimately where the crucifixion takes place. Uh, that's the, the point at the top there. Uh, you can't actually get up there today uh, very easily. Um, there's a, This whole area right next to it is now a bus station. But this would have been the area that people no doubt would have been kind of gathering and looking up to the top as Jesus was crucified. Coming along the wall, you come along into this area of this garden. You've got, you can see obviously the natural rock there, and obviously there's a man-made wall being made above that. And then you come along a bit further, and then we have the garden tomb, which fits again all the details of, of scripture. Uh, that's another view. And just to give you some indication, you can see at the bottom here, you've got this gully, which was clearly designed for the rolling of a stone or something. Uh, to actually block the entrance of the tomb. Uh, now, a stone that size wouldn't have been easily moved. Of course, we're told in Scripture that an angel actually moved the stone on the morning of the resurrection. If you go inside the tomb, you'll find uh, this is just one shot. There's, there's a little bit that goes off uh, to the left here as well, um, but that's the area. Unfortunately, you can't quite see it from this picture, um, but the area where the, the body lays, easily you would have had a bit either side, where if you remember... We have those two angels on the morning of the resurrection, one sitting either end, just as you have with the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was the mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice was to be shed. And it's that place where Jesus is laid. And of course, the blood of Jesus, no doubt, still staining that place at that time. Then the shot with inside, and then the, the door... You're going to read that. It just says, he's not here, he's risen. Of course, Jesus is risen. It's the foundation of our faith. And there is a tomb in Jerusalem that this morning still is empty. Because the one who was laid there rose from the grave, defeating death. No other religious leader 
can claim that. No other religion, no other religion declares that their leader has risen from the grave in resurrection. But of course, Jesus himself did so and showed himself alive. Paul tells, sorry, Luke tells us by many infallible proofs. So let's jump back into the text in Genesis 22, verse 15 says, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven a second time and said, By myself have I sworn, says the Lord. Now just note here, when we come across this reference to the angel of the Lord, we're not talking about any old angelic being. This is God himself. In the Old Testament, a number of times you will find the angel of the Lord referenced. And we're speaking of effectively the second person of the Trinity, the one you and I know as Jesus Christ. But this is prior to the incarnation, but this is Jesus speaking and presenting himself. Again, a number of times through the Old Testament, but it's very clear because verse 16 says, By myself have I sworn, says the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. Now, Abraham's in his position, of course, being told this blessing is really a reiteration of what we've seen in Genesis 12 already. But there's an element of this that applies to us, because we're all in this position of effectively being allowed to go free. Because of that willingness of Abraham to lay down that which was most precious to him. God promises these blessings. You know, for us, God calls us to lay down the very best we have. To give up our lives. As Oswald Chambers refers to it, the right to ourselves. You know, the world likes to retain that right to say, well, I have rights. This is what I expect. This is what I deserve. I found it interesting this week. I had an email that Jeff sent through. Jeff had been out speaking uh, or dropping tracks in, and somebody had responded to one of the tracks that Jeff had uh, sent out. Quite upset because in the tracks it had said that we're sinners. And this individual didn't like that. Didn't like the fact that he was told he was a sinner because he felt he was a good person. He felt that he believed in God, that he was okay with God. Well... Sadly, that's just pride. You see, we have to come to that place of recognizing that in ourselves there dwells no good thing. And we have to give over ourselves to God to lay it down. But if, like Abraham and Isaac, we're willing to give up all that we have for him, well, if we lose our life, what is it the Lord says? Well, we'll find it. But if you try and hold on to your life, well, then you can't have God too. But again, those blessings for us, that in blessing I will bless thee, multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, as the sandwiches upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of thine enemies. In one sense, that's true of the church. That these blessings will come upon us also. Now, verse 18 says, And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young man, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Notice what's missing. Isaac. So Abraham returned to his young man. Where's Isaac? Not there. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has intentionally edited Isaac out of the text. We don't see Isaac again from this point until he is united with his bride in chapter 24. What a wonderful model that is. Because after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, Jesus went back to heaven. Where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And in one sense we don't see him again until he's united with his bride. What a wonderful picture within the text God has built in there for us. <clears throat> then just to conclude the chapter, we're given some more details about the family and what's going on. It came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah, that she has also borne children unto thy brother Nahor, Huz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother. What great names for children, aren't they? It's ever so simple as well. You just change one letter. Just, you know, if you've got t-shirts you do for one of them, you could just kind of color the bits in and it's just don't have to buy new stuff. It's very good. And Kemuel, the father of Amran and Chesed and Hazo and Pildash and Jidlaf and Bethuel. So these are the names um, we're given if we look at them. So Milka, who was Haran's daughter, remember Haran dies early 
uh, and Lot becomes, or Lot's Abraham's nephew, so he's looked after by Abraham. Well, Milcah ends up marrying her uncle, Nahor. And they have these children together, the ones that are highlighted in yellow there. Um, all of the ones that are listed. And then we're just going to go on to see that Bethuel will become the father of Rebekah and Laban. And of course, we recognize from uh, Laban, we get Leah and Rachel. Rebekah, of course, will marry Isaac. And then Jacob will end up marrying uh, Leah first, and then uh, Rachel. We'll see as we go on in the text. Uh, Bethuel beget Rebekah, and we're told, and these eight Milcah did Beth and Nahor, Abraham's brother, and his concubine, whose name was Ruemah. Uh, uh, you can mispronounce these at home for your leisure. Um, and she bare also Teba and Geham and Tahash and Mayaka. Okay? So that brings us uh, to the end of chapter 22. But what an incredible chapter! All of this laid down 2,000 years in advance of the most important event in history when another father would actually allow his own son to be put to death because of his great love for you and I. Let's bow our hearts and pray. Father, we thank you for this chapter, Lord. It just reminds us that the lamb was slain from before the foundation of the world. That, Lord, you knew ahead of time the wickedness of our hearts and, Lord, the need that we had of a Savior. And that, Lord, even before you began the work of creation, you'd begun the work of redemption. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the incredible love that you have shown to each one of us. A love so great that it cost the death of your Son. Father, help us not to treat any of these things lightly. Lord, help us to be reminded again and again what it cost you. Lord, the, the image, the thought of Abraham as a father standing there about to see his own son die. Tears pouring down his face, no doubt. And then at Calvary, how Lord, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, I believe that moment when you had to turn your face away. As Jesus became sin for us. So, Lord, we thank you. We truly thank you. And, Lord, please let it impact our lives and our thinking so that we do live differently for you. Lord, your grace is overwhelming. Lord, let us live lives of worship in response to that grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.